So, uh, can you remember the time, maybe if there's one circumstance, situation in particular that comes to mind, or maybe a few, when you were the most afraid in your life? Maybe it was a brush with death. What are your greatest fears? Do you think about these questions much? What are your greatest fears? Maybe they're the most recurring fears. Maybe they're the ones that keep you on the mental hamster wheel at night, looking at the ceiling when you wish that you could fall asleep. Maybe they're the ones that just seem to pile on you in the shower in the morning as you're heading into the day. What fears dog you every day? We all have them. They all impact us every day, probably more than we know. In a book called Tempted and Tried, Russell Moore, he wrote this book years ago, but he writes this. If, as both ancient and contemporary wisdom tell us, stories exist to help us categorize our fears and aspirations. So if that's true, then wild children's stories remind us of what we see everywhere in human art, from cave paintings to country music to the Cannes Film Festival. We are afraid of the wildness out there in the scary universe around us. Whether we fear saber-toothed tigers, probably not most of us in this room, maybe some younger ones of us, or Wall Street collapse, or malaria, or our parents' impending divorce, there are frightening, threatening forces out there that seem outside of our control. And then he writes this, and worse than that, we seem to fear perhaps most of all the uncontrollable wildness inside of us. Those passions and desires and rages and longings and sorrows within our psyches that seem to be even scarier because they're so hidden, so close, and so much at the core of who we are. The wildness within us doesn't seem to end either. It just morphs throughout the life cycle from toddler age tantrums to teenage hormones, to midlife crises, and beyond. So the stories in our culture, their legion in every culture, show us what, seem, what we seem to know intuitively, that the wildness both out there and in here needs to be governed. The wildness needs to be reined in and reined in, like reined over as in. R-E-I-G-N-E-D. We need a king, and we need to be a part of a kingdom. So I think that quote sets us up well for Mark chapters 4 and 5. We're going to look at the end of chapter 4. So if you're not there, go ahead and turn to Mark 4.35, and we're going to study that section through Mark 5.20. We're doing a series through the Gospel of Mark. And we come to chapter, the end of chapter 4. If you are using the Pew Bible, you can find this section on page 839. So there's two episodes in this section, the end of chapter 4 
and then chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. The first is about the storm, Jesus calming the storm. The second is about this demoniac that Jesus and his disciples meet um, in the region of um, the Gerasenes. So we're going to look at them in turn. First, episode one, then episode two. So let's read first Mark 4, 35 to 41. This is the first episode and fix our eyes on the Lord of the storm. All right, so on that day when evening had come, this is after Jesus had taught the disciples the parable of the sowers. Russell walked through this last week, um, the parable of the sower and the, and the seed and the, the soils and so forth. Um, so on that day, remember, he was teaching in the boat because the crowd was pressing in so much. He taught from the boat. It kind of made a natural amphitheater. And so when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. What does that mean, just as he was? Probably just like straight from the teaching time. He was already in the boat. Didn't return back to the shore, didn't mess with the crowds, didn't have to make preparations or, you know, pick up his backpack or whatever. Took him just as he was, and they went to the other side. And a great windstorm arose really strong language like hurricane and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling he was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him teacher do you not care that we are perishing and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea peace be still and the wind ceased and there was a great calm Great windstorm, verse 37. Great calm, verse 39. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So, we need to kind of get into the boat here, as it were. Um, this is the Sea of Galilee. Squalls, like nasty, violent squalls like this were not uncommon because of the topography. Okay, it was basically like a basin. And so, I'll just let commentator kind of summarize the, the issues. I'm no, what, what are you if you are a master in like topography? I have no idea, and I'm certainly not a meteorologist. So James Edwards says, the Sea of Galilee lies nearly 700 feet below sea level in a basin surrounded by hills and mountains that are especially precipitous on the east side. 30 miles to the northeast, Mount Hermon rises to 9,200 feet above sea level. The interchange between cold upper air from Mount Hermon and warm air rising from the Sea of Galilee produces tempestuous weather conditions for which the lake is famed. The furious squall of verse 37, which in Greek can mean hurricane, fits the stories of Galilean fishermen even today. Okay, so that's what's going on here. And listen, some of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. Okay, so this was not like a surprise to them. They were used to this, actually. They were used to the weather. And those fishermen think they're going to die. So this is not just any squall. This is a really, really bad one. 
Okay, teacher, do you not care? So the boat's already filling. They're in danger of sinking. The waves are going over the boat. And Jesus is sleeping. They really think they're going to die. Do you not care that we're perishing? This is not hyperbole. So get yourself into this boat and try to enter into the story. How would you be feeling in this moment? You would probably be asking the same question. Do you not care that we're perishing? So that question, isn't that a live one? Like, isn't that a practical, like, relevant, helpful one? Whenever the storms of life get kicked up, whenever trials and tribulations come, has Jesus forgotten about me? Like, you felt this way, right? Even the first disciples, like, in light of Roman oppression and persecution, so Mark writes this, gospel, the first readers would have been under Roman oppression and persecution is rising. People are being, you know, killed for their faith. They could feel like God had forsaken them. Is he indifferent? Does he care? Same thing for us. Again, we can, again, I know this is like, oh, sermonizing or whatever, like, have you ever felt like you were sinking, you were drowning? But these are good metaphors to describe how we feel. You're crying out to God. He seems to be silent and distant. I mean, he might as well be asleep for crying out loud. Doesn't he know? Doesn't he care? If you love me, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Think about the assumptions underneath that question. What's beneath that question? And we'll actually come back to it a little later on. But for now, notice, I'll, I'll maybe make the difficulty of it that much harder. Notice that it is Jesus who led them into this storm. Look at verse 35. Let us go across to the other side. <laughs> Jesus is leading them right into this storm. He may have been asleep, but he is ultimately the captain of this ship, and he captained them right into the chaos of this storm. Okay, we'll consider that more in a few minutes. But the next thing we see is the rebuke. And it's actually not first toward the disciples, it's toward the wind and the waves. So they woke him, and he awoke and rebuked the wind. It's actually the same verb that's used when Jesus rebukes demons earlier on in Mark's gospel. He rebukes the wind and says to the sea, be still. So peace, be still which this is actually surprising. I think we can just read right past it. We're familiar with it. But the point is, it's just a mere word, a couple words. No incantations. He doesn't pull out his wand, you know, and do some complicated thing in the air. Like, he created by a mere word order out of chaos, and he controlled chaos by a mere word. So Jesus doesn't need any incantations, nothing complicated. He doesn't need to call upon the name of some God in the name of, you know, I command you. He just says, quiet. And it stops. 
The wind and the waves recognized the voice of their master, and they responded with first-time immediate obedience. Just imagine being there. Just, I don't mean any pun here. Let that sink in. Like, let it sink in what happened there. So the wind ceased, and there was great calm, like the waves stopped. You know, if you're in a storm near the ocean or on a huge lake or something, and there's a crazy storm, even if the storm ends, the waves continue to roll for a while. But this was the wind stopped and the waves stopped. Miraculous, supernatural. So after then commanding the elements, he turns to his disciples and asks a question. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? It's actually a little bit of an uncommon word for fear. It's probably better translated cowardice, like why are you so cowardly? Okay, it's translated that way in Revelation. So, and, and then this question, have you still no faith? What, what does he mean there? Well, after all you've heard and seen, do you not yet trust me? Or trust God? Like, why are you still afraid? So we could think Jesus is being pretty insensitive here, like, um, hello, we just about died. The boat was about to capsize. Like, is, this is the big E on the I chart. Are you serious, Jesus? No. Jesus is asking a serious question. This is really worth thinking about because he will captain us into the chaos. And we need to answer this question. Why? Why are you so afraid? Because there are, there are things underneath all of our fears, things that we believe. So that's a really good question to ask. There are assumptions under our fears. We need to examine and diagnose our fears. And again, we'll come back to that. But we're just walking down through and making sure that we grasp what's going on in this episode, this encounter. So the question is asked then in verse 41. They were filled with great fear. Interestingly, it seems like they're more afraid afterward than they were before. I mean, certainly they're fearful in the, in the storm, think they're going to die. But the Greek actually says they feared a great fear, like it's just a doubling of the word for emphasis. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I mean, great question, right? So Yvonne read from Psalm 107. How would that psalm answer the question of who calms the storm? Who is sovereign over the waves and the sea and the wind? Only God. That's what's in their mind. Like, only God can do this. And that's the consistent testimony in the Old Testament. Psalm 67, or 65, 7, and 8. God is the one who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves. Psalm 89, 8. O Lord God, God of hosts, who is mighty as you who is mighty as you are? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Or Psalm 106 speaks of the Exodus in these terms. He rebuked the Red Sea 
and it became dry. So the bottom line is only God calms the sea. So the disciples are asking, uh, who then is this? And what is the first half of the Gospel of Mark all about? Who is Jesus? His identity. We see it over and over again. Who is this who forgives sins directly? Only God forgives sins. Well, exactly, because God has showed up. Emmanuel, God with us. God in the flesh. So, Jesus revealing his identity here as the Lord of creation. Another answer to the question, who is this, which is helpful here, I think, and worth bringing into the picture, is this is the God of Jonah. And so have you ever noticed that there are parallels between Jonah and this episode? Just think about it. If you're familiar with Jonah, Jonah chapter 1 in particular and Mark 4, some of the parallels. Jonah and Jesus, both in boats, asleep in the midst of furious storms. In both cases, the seamen, okay, like the people, you know, pulling the oars or driving the boat, are afraid. So in Jonah's case, these pagan seamen and the disciples in Jesus' case. And both are experienced on the water. And both sets think they're going to die. The captain wakes Jonah up, rebukes him. The disciples wake Jesus up and, in a sense, rebuke him. Like, teacher, don't you care? So, and then, in both cases, an action is taken and the sea is supernaturally calmed. And in both stories, the fear seems to increase after the divine intervention. The difference, (laughs) there are some differences, right? Jonah is cast into the sea to calm the waters. Jesus speaks to the storm to calm the waters. Obviously, other differences. Jonah was fleeing from God's presence. Jesus was God's presence. Genus, let me try that again. Jonah was sleeping to escape. He was actually sleeping in unbelief. Jesus is sleeping in faith. Jonah was the cause of the storm on account of his rebellion. Jesus was the captain of the storm on account of his rule over nature. Jonah had to be thrown into the raging sea for God to still the storm. Jesus showed himself to be God by stilling the raging storm. So Luke 11.32 says this, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Who is this? Something greater than Jonah is who this is. So Jonah figured he would have to perish in order for the mariners to be saved. Right? He was rebelling and God throws this storm at him and, you know, judgment is coming. And so that judgment doesn't bleed into the lives of these mariners. He should die for the sake of these others. Throw me overboard. I deserve this. And you'll be saved. But Jesus, very different. So 
he is going to actually go through the storm of God's judgment, not because of his rebellion, but because of ours. Right? So we're all as guilty as Jonah of rebelling against God. We all deserve the storm of God's judgment. We deserve to be thrown into the raging sea. But Jesus, sinless and perfect, willingly later on, I mean, this is in a sense kind of a picture of what's to come, the greater Jonah, he willingly flung himself into the storm of God's wrath so that we could be rescued, we could be saved. So he went under the waves of God's wrath, died in our place for our sins on the cross so that we could be reconciled and at peace with God so that all could be calm between us and God. He was raised again on the third day, victorious over sin and death and hell so that he could be our captain and pilot us through all of the storms of this life. So Jesus is an ark of safety, you could say. If you're trusting in Jesus, then you are safe because he went down under the waves for you. And then as you go through this life, the storms of life are not purposeless. They're not gratuitous. They need not call his love into question. If you say, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? Well, guess what? He's not only going to calm that storm, he's going to go under so that he can save you from the ultimate storm of God's wrath and be with you and captain you all the way home through all of the storms of this life. So the storms need not call his love into question. You see? So the storms of life are not purposeless. Whenever we're tempted to think this thought, don't you care that we're perishing, that we're suffering? Remember how he dove into the raging tempest and was swallowed up so that we could be, you know, have some solid footing underneath us in his unsinkable vessel. He is our ark of safety. Someone greater than Jonah is here. So that's episode one. Episode two now, chapter five, verses one to 20. So we saw the Lord of the storm, and now we're going to see the Lord of the spirits, verses one to 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of, out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. 
Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends. Probably more likely family and beyond that, family and friends. That term can refer to family as well. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So the Lord of the spirits. So we got into the boat to try to enter into this story. We need to stay in the boat here, and then we're going to get out of the boat. But again, all of this so that we can enter into the story. So imagine, can you imagine what things were like between the stilling of the storm and the arrival on land? Probably pretty quiet. <laughs> um, you know, like disciples looking at each other, you know, the who is this, like what in the world, did you see that sort of stuff? But pretty quickly, if you are a first century Jew, which is everybody in that boat, they're getting real uncomfortable about their destination. So they are heading into Gentile territory. And to Jews, that was like unclean world. Okay? Like, you don't want to go to the opposite, opposite side of the lake. And you see this herd of pigs feeding on the hill and, oh, swine herds. Like, that's not kosher. Why are we going here? And where, you, where do you land? This desolate spot, and there's a bunch of tombs. Great. It's another way to be unclean is to be among the tombs. More uncleanness, more defilement. What in the world are we doing here? And then you see this man. You think it's a man. I mean, acting all erratic and it's almost like a beast. Who is that? What is he doing in this area? It's hard to tell from a distance, but, it, you know, just like you run aground, you file out of the boat, and here comes this crazy man right at you. He's naked, sunbaked, his hair and beard unkempt and wild, like Mark's account says that he would roam night and day among the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with sharp stones. His skin is scarred and scabbed. His nails are probably long and talon-like. He's like an animal, and he's coming right at you. How are you feeling about this? Jesus has pushed the boundaries before, touching a leper, healing on the Sabbath, etc. But going to that unclean land filled with unclean people who herd unclean animals like pigs to meet a maniacal, unclean man filled with unclean spirits living among unclean tombs, 
This is like, are you, what are we doing? Why in the world are we here? You're looking at Jesus, you're looking at the man, you're looking back at Jesus, like, <laughs> and Jesus walks forward. I mean, you're going to want to just get back in that boat, go the other direction. Jesus calmly walks forward. It's almost as if he intended to meet this man on the shore. And this man falls to the ground and cries out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Isn't this interesting? There's so many interesting things. We won't, you know, look under every rock, every detail. The unclean spirits speaking through this man, this man, I mean, he's broken and divided, and even the pronouns are singular and plural, and he's basically saying, like, like, for God's sake, don't torment me. They know who Jesus is. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Jesus, the son of the most high God. The first person to answer that question is this demoniac. The unclean spirits know who Jesus is. So this encounter, it's such a sad story, isn't it? I mean, it, it's scary. You can imagine being in the disciples' shoes, but it's also just so sad to see the impact of these demons in this man's life. He is completely isolated. Obviously, again, he would have been fearful to deal with. No one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain. This is not Houdini stuff. This is supernatural strength stuff breaking chains and shackles. So it's a fearful encounter, but Jesus seems to have no fear whatsoever, and he exercises the demons here. So look at verse 8. He was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So for the demon to say, we know who you are, this was like an attempt, a weak one at that, but an attempt, like in the first century mindset, to be able to name someone was to exercise control over them. So the demons are trying to exercise control over Jesus, and obviously they can't. They're pleading with him not to torment them. And so he turns the tables, what is your name? My name is Legion. A Roman legion was a, like the largest army unit, 5,600 to 6,000 troops. That doesn't mean that there were literally 5,600 to 6,000 demons. Maybe there were 2,000 demons. Maybe there were 5,600 demons. Who knows? But the point is there's a lot of them. Jesus is totally outnumbered, right? But he has no fear. And he says, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So he doesn't have to, again, appeal to a higher authority. He just commands the demons to come out. They wanted to go into the pigs. He gives them permission because he's in control. So obviously this man was no match for these demons. 
they had wrecked his life, and who knows how it all started. But, but with the demons possessing this man, no man was a match for this man. But this man, for whom no man was a match, met his match when Jesus hit the shore. Because Jesus was no mere man. He was the son of the Most High God. So he exercises the demon with demons with a word. Now, we know what happened in the story, but one thing that we need to shine a light on is the aims of the powers that are clashing here. What were the aims of these demons, and what is Jesus' aim here, or what are his aims? Obviously, the demons were aimed at destruction, right? Look at this, lot, this man's life. He's been completely, like, isolated from people, society, community, all of that. Unclean, acting like an animal, cutting himself. So they are destroying him. Satan's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's a murderer from the beginning and always. You do not want to give him a foothold. But what's Jesus' aim here? His aim is to free this man, to deliver this man, to give this man his life back. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of Jesus here for this man. In fact, he intentionally went right to him. Someone whom everybody else would have run the other way. Jesus went right to him in order to deliver him. So just noticing those aims is worthwhile because Jesus is revealing who he is. Who is this? So not only his power, but also his heart is being revealed here. Jesus, strong and kind that we sung. Very strong and very kind. So what about the pigs? Kind of seems like a weird detail, you know, right? Like, we might even be bothered by it, like, Jesus, did you know that they were going to, like, go down into the sea? I mean, that's a lot of people's livelihood, and, you know, maybe you're bothered by that. What are we even to make of this? Well, it doesn't matter to those pagans, you know, it's the pigs. I wonder if one of the points that's being made here is to emphasize the value of this man. Remember in Matthew 6, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Look at the birds. Aren't you of greater value than they? Or in Matthew 12, 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? If you would take care of your sheep on a Sabbath, why wouldn't I heal on the Sabbath? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Well, how about the implication of this man, scary and wild and unclean as he was, he was of greater value than 2,000 pigs. Nothing is said of the loss. Now, again, that's not necessarily cold to the Gentiles in the region, but just stop and think about this. Mark doesn't answer all of our questions, okay? But just stop and think of the exchange there, if you were to put it in those terms. Maybe that's crass. I don't know how much Middle Eastern pigs weigh. I'm going to go conservative here. I mean, pigs can weigh like seven, eight, nine hundred pounds. 
but let's just go with 150 pound pigs. Because I imagine the grazing is not as good there as it is, you know, in Wisconsin. Um, 150 pound pigs, 70 pounds of retail cuts. That was with a little bit of, you know, research online to know how much weight is actually sellable vis-a-vis total weight. All right, four bucks a pound. That's pretty reasonable right now. Even though some cuts would be more, probably not much would be less. So this is like really conservative. I mean, Sam's mind's going as the estimator. He probably already has this figured out. So it's like $280 a pig times 2,000. That's $560,000. I love this comment by James Edwards. In the eyes of Jesus, the rescue and restoration of one person is more important than vast capital assets. Compared to the redemption of a human being, the loss of the swine herds, considerable though it was, does not rate mentioning. Strong and kind. The heart of Jesus being revealed here. Because listen, Jesus came. You know, one of the, there's lots of ways to answer that question. Why did Jesus come? One of the ways the Bible answers that question is he came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8, just run through a couple of them quickly here. You can flip there if you want. 1 John 3.8 says this. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And it's begun. Jesus shows up, and that work of destruction has begun. He's, he's exercising the demons from an individual, but ultimately he will from the entire world. He's going to make all things new. He's going to set things right, and all rebellion will be taken care of. Or, I love this, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 say this. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Isn't that awesome? That that is our savior, that's his heart, and he exercises his strength toward us in order to free us from our fears. How many, like we talked about fears at the beginning, the greatest fears. Oftentimes we, we need to ask about the fears underneath the fears. And I think fear of death is probably one of those underlying fears that shows up in a lot of different ways above ground. It's a root fear. And Jesus came to kill death and to destroy the work of the devil so that we would be set free from slavery to fear of death. So there's lots more passages like this, but this is the heart of Jesus. He is revealing himself to us, and he came to destroy the works of the devil. Now, I think I should probably do just a little brief excursus here, because this is probably a typical question that people ask. Can a Christian be possessed? 
And now, now this guy is obviously not a believer in Jesus before Jesus shows up, but he is afterwards, right? But sometimes we, you know, talk about demons and can a Christian be possessed? So let me just quickly hit this while we're here, and I would say the language in the Bible, it never uses the language of possession per se, although here, obviously, the demons dwell within this guy. Um, the language in the New Testament is demonized, okay? So can a Christian be demonized? Well, we still need to determine what that means, and the answer is yes. Can a Christian be possessed in this sense, like this demoniac? No. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, okay? So if you are in Christ, you can't be possessed by a demon. That doesn't mean you can't be tempted, influenced by demonic activity. Absolutely you can. You can by way of bad decisions. You know, in Ephesians 4, it says, don't let the devil get a foothold, why? Because he can get a foothold, <laughs> even in the lives of Christians. Sometimes it's just because you're a Christian. So 1 Peter 5, 8 talks about resisting the devil, your enemy, the devil, adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, why is he coming after you? Because you're a Christian, and he hates Christians. He hates your faith. He wants to devour you. So resist him, firm in your faith. Sometimes it come, comes on as a result of God's testing. Did Job do anything wrong? No. He was righteous and blameless, but he suffered. And Satan was a secondary cause that effected that suffering. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. You know the thorn in the flesh? It's referred to as a messenger from Satan. Satan had the desire to afflict, harass, and destroy Paul, God used Satan like a tool to humble Paul. So when I say that a Christian can be demonized, can be influenced, influenced tempted, you know, attacked, absolutely. But we don't have to be fearful about that. Like I read somewhere, you know, if I said that you know, you, you could get hit by a car if you cross the street. Are you going to be like, oh, I'm never going to cross the street again? No, you're going to be careful as you go across the street. You're going to look both ways. So you could be demonized, brother or sister. Oh, I'm going to hide in my closet. <laughs> well, no. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Take up the full armor of God. Don't fall asleep spiritually. Be alert and awake and watchful. So we certainly need to guard against being lulled to sleep because we are in a cosmic battle. Ephesians 6, you know, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Um, but we also don't have to live, you know, freaked out because there's a demon under every rock or something like that. So end of exorcist. <laughs> One more point here on discipleship. Um, before we, you know, just tie this together with a couple big picture applications. So if you recognize who Jesus is, if you really, like, who is this? If you really know who he is, if you, and I don't just mean like propositions in your head. I mean, you encounter the real Jesus. 
you will either beg him to leave, leave me alone, or out of faith, you will beg him to be with him. So do you see the before and after of this guy? So before, he's, what have you had, like, what have you got to do with me? Like, leave me alone. And then afterwards, after Jesus casts out these demons, look at what it says in verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. Do you remember that phrase? In Mark chapter 3, if you just flip back probably a page from where you are, Mark chapter 3, Jesus called his disciples. Remember that? It was the Sunday Chris Elliott preached. He went up on the mountain, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. This is like a description of discipleship. So here's this wild animal-type man, scarcely even human, societal menace, living among the tombs, total reversal, the townspeople beg Jesus to leave because they're afraid, like, it's just out of their experience. They're afraid of more, you know, consequences. What's he going to do next? Who knows? But this guy, before he said, leave me alone. And now he's saying, don't leave me alone. Let me come with you. I want to be with you. I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you. Jesus actually says, no. No. <laughs> Which you might be like, oh, man, Jesus, why? But Jesus says, no, I've got a job for you. Which, again, is just wonderful honoring of this man. I came over to seek and save that which was lost. I wanted to make a crazy maniac into a mouthpiece to tell this region who I am. I'm getting booted out of this region. They don't want me back. But you've got family and friends to go back to and tell them, what the Lord did for you. And they're going to see it because, wait, this is impossible. This was the... And he obeys Jesus' word as a good disciple. And he, he goes, I mean, he had a good desire to be with Jesus, right? But he obeys and goes and proclaims in the Decapolis, the 10 cities, Gentile cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Like, so at the very least, we could say here, if Jesus can do this for him, Jesus can change your life. And he's changed many of our lives, right? So it's also interesting in the Gospel of Mark, if you've been with us as we've studied the book, you notice how he's actually telling people to be silent after he heals them or he, you know, does something for them. Like, just keep it quiet. Why does he do that? Because... The Jews had this messianic expectation that what they really needed was a political military leader to deliver them from Roman oppression. And he came, his mission was to deliver them from their sins. So he needed to rearrange the furniture before they were going to go representing him and preaching the message because they would have been preaching the wrong message. This guy didn't have that baggage. He didn't have that, you know, kind of Jewish expectation of a political military messiah. So Jesus says, you go preach. Tell him what, what the Lord has done for you. And he's 
He doesn't say, let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. He says, this is what Jesus has done for me, who is the Lord. So Jesus gets booted from the area. This guy can go places he can't. Go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he's had mercy on you. Great description of evangelism, isn't it? Speaking of discipleship here. Now, speaking of discipleship, as we kind of draw this to a close with a couple big picture applications, remember how the disciples must have felt when they arrived to shore, you know, this crazed man possessed by demons. Why? Why are we going here, Jesus? Jesus took them out of their comfort zone, certainly, but he's taking them out of their comfort zone for the sake of love. Love for that man because he planned to deliver him. I mean, isn't that just like Jesus? I, I think this is interesting. You know how in Hebrews 4, it talks about Jesus' sympathetic high priest? Jesus was in the wilderness, tempted by Satan. This man was in the wilderness, tortured by Satan. And he goes to deliver him. It's for the sake of love. Why did Jesus take them across the lake to this unclean place? For the love of this man, and then ultimately for the love of his people, the Gentiles, because he knew he was going to deliver that guy and then send him as a missionary to go tell all of his friends and family what Jesus had done for him and about his mercy. And he did it out of love for his disciples in the boat to reveal his glory, show them his authority and his power so that they would trust him and put their confidence in him more and more in the face of fearful circumstances. So I think there might be a lesson in discipleship for us here, right? Jesus will not necessarily save us from fearful circumstances. In fact, sometimes he leads us right into them, but not because he's cruel and cold. He does it to kick up our fears and show us where our faith is. He does it also to show us his power and his worthiness to be trusted because he wants to build our faith. He's strong and kind. He does it for the sake of love, to free others who need to know of his love and power and to free us from our fears so that we can walk confidently following him. Listen, it is not a bad thing to have the borders of your comfort zone blown up by Jesus. He will regularly lead us out of the borders of our comfort zone, which leads us to these last two points of application. So I don't know if we would ever actually articulate this question or state things this way, but if we pull back, I think we could probably capture things by saying, I think oftentimes we feel like we're at the mercy of the storm, right? So are we at the mercy of the storm? Like the trials and tribulations and sufferings that we go through, are we at the mercy of the storm? Jesus questioned his disciples' faith. Is he too hard on them there? Where is your faith? He doesn't promise, us to, promise to keep us from the storms. He'll be with us through them. He's sovereign over them. Are we at the mercy of the storm or are we at the mercy of the sovereign one who's the Lord of the storms and the Lord of the spirits, the unclean spirits? Like, 
We need to wrestle with that question because the whole point of this section is to convince us that we are not at the mercy of the storms. And we are, praise God, at the mercy of the sovereign one over the storms. And we can trust him. So it's, it's all about what you see, right? It's all about what you believe about who Jesus is. Their cowardice before and their fear after are both tied to who they perceived to be with them in the boat. So let me, let me get at it this way. Goliath looked a whole lot different to Saul than he did to David because David was looking at God and Goliath, not just Goliath. So David looked at that showdown as, oh, God versus Goliath, no contest. And he ran right into the battle. Goliath looked at it as, I know I'm the tallest guy around here, but man, that guy's a lot taller. And he shrunk back. Jesus is asking, where is your faith? Why are you still so afraid? So he's asking us those same questions. And oftentimes he'll lead us out of our comfort zone. We are at his mercy, and sometimes we don't like it. He'll lead us out of our comfort zone to kick up our fears and our unbelief to show us not cruelly to needle us, but lovingly because he wants to actually have our faith be planted on the rock. Like, if he never showed us that our faith is elsewhere, that, you know, we're just riddled with fear, that wouldn't be loving. So he intentionally kicks that stuff up because he wants to build our lives on the rock of his trustworthiness and faithfulness. So Jesus is actually fighting for his disciples' faith by exposing their unbelief and then showing them again and again his power and his goodness. He's worthy to be trusted. And you know what? He's going to do that. This is kind of like his MO. He's going to do that over and over again. Our trials are not accidental. They're not gratuitous. They're not the incidental byproduct of chaos. It's purposeful and intentional. We are at the mercy of the captain of the universe, which means we should actually expect it. So no wonder that 2 Corinthians 1.8 says this, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. Same thing with the thorn in the flesh. Why did God give that to Paul? To keep him humble and clinging to his true source of strength. It could seem cruel. Why are you harassing me with this? Take it away. No, take it away. No, take it away. No. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. Trust me. Okay. So we are not at the mercy of the storms of life. We are at the mercy of the captain of the storms. Last point here, fear and faith. 
So interestingly, both episodes, I mentioned it before, people are more fearful after Jesus intervenes than before, seemingly. Here is one, certainly, in both of those instances, if you were there, I mean, you would be trembling, I think, afterwards. I think we all would. This is one not to be trifled with. But also, he's powerful to deliver from the most fearful circumstances and free from the most desperate case, like free someone from the most desperate circumstances like this demoniac. So if you think this violent storm, this violent man are scary, how about the one that can just deal with it like that? Like, whoa, this is the one whom you should fear. You don't want Jesus against you. You want him for you, right? And his heart, that's why he came, so that he could be for you. So trust him. If God is for us, who can be against us? He was plunged under the waves, the wrath of God, so that we could be rescued and given safety. Like all of our sins forgiven, death will one day be no more. The sting of death has been taken out. When God is for you, who can be against you? The Lord is my shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. So someone once said, fear God, and you will have nothing more to fear, not even God. Should we fear God? Sure, absolutely. It's the beginning of wisdom. Like reverence and awe is due him. He's worthy of it. But do we need to fear God in the sense of punishment? If you're trusting in Jesus because he took your sins, you have nothing left to fear. There's nothing left but love. Will he discipline us? Will he, you know, grow our faith and bring us out of our comfort zone? Absolutely, but there's no punishment left. Jesus took it all for us. If you're trusting in Jesus, there's, no, there's nothing left but love. So perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love came to this man and cast out a legion of demons. And I bet that guy was fearless proclaiming the gospel in the Decapolis. So yes, we fear God, but we don't have to fear punishment from God. Perfect love casts out all fear. 1 John 4, 17 to 18, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So brothers and sisters, following the Lord of the storms and the Lord of the spirits, we can walk confidently and have no fear. Let's pray. And we're going to sing fittingly a mighty fortress and God is for us. So Lord, we thank you that you are a mighty fortress, that you are strong and kind and we can trust you. And I pray that you would help us to see you for who you really are so that we are set free from enslaving fears and our feet are set on stable foundation to go through this life with all of its storms and troubles knowing that we are not at the mere mercy of the storms and trials, but we are at your mercy, and you are so rich in mercy. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.